Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I've, I fluctuate. I know the one thing they tell you is to keep a consistent sleep schedule, but I... Uh I'm kind of all over the map. Some, some nights I'll stay up late, but I like a one one a.m. bedtime. Sounds good. It sounds like a good good goal for me. Because you get a little bit of the night. Yeah, you get a you little taste. Like going too early. You get a little taste of the witching hour, and then you conk out. And yeah, I don't. I don't like to sleep. I, I hate waking up at like afternoon. I always feel like I've ruined my life. Like, what am I doing? I've Guilt, uh, guilt and shame are big fa- motivating factors for me. Not just ruin the day, but ruin your life. Oh, God. Life's over. I mean, I might as well pack it in. That's what I say. Um, <laughs> but you're seven hours ahead? You're you're in the UK, right? Yeah, I'm in Scotland. I think we're eight ahead. It's about 6 p.m. here. Where in Scotland are you? Up in the north at the moment in Aberdeenshire. Oh, Usually beautiful. in Glasgow and looking for a place again there right now, but back up in the north for the moment nice it's so beautiful there it's it's a beautiful sunny day today as well and i went out walking kind of got a little bit lost to be honest ended up in a field with some sheep but wow uh, (laughs) you're like alan partridge yeah a little bit yeah are you a big partridge fan i would say i would say i i I love alan partridge deeply (laughs) i was never sure if that humor would kind of translate across the pond is he kind of is he big over there or he's is it not more of a cult he's thing? not big but those who those who know like that character over here are you know completists like you, if once you get a get your hooks in it's it's um it's deep deep love and i feel like i wonder if it's as funny for people over there that it is for us because so much of it is just I mean, there's so much that's brilliant about that character, but um, 
it also be, be it's it's also sort of there's an exoticism to um the slang and the you know the accent of course like it feels very i don't know it just it's all feels baked into what's funny about it but uh i just i can't imagine i'm trying to think of like a canadian if i was watching a canadian thing i think the canadian accent might be a deterrent it might be like make the the material less funny than more so i i always wondered if i'm getting something even more out of it uh, uh, out of uh the Alan Partridge character than someone from, you know, Norwich or whatever. How come you think the Canadian accent wouldn't quite work? Well, I don't want to get myself in trouble with my fellow Canadians, but I've lived, you know, I've lived in the U.S. for f- 14 years, and I just feel I can really hear it now. I, th- I can really hear that Canadian accent. And... I don't know. I just, it's funny to me. It's a funny accent. It's very, it's kind of mellifluous. It has this like musical sort of lilt, kind of like Swedish, I guess. But I just, I've been outside of it for so long that I can kind of hear it more um, clearly than I think, uh, than I obviously could when I was um, living in Canada. And um, it's just, sometimes I think it's kind of goofy sounding. Uh, <laughs> that's so, I don't know. I don't know. I quite like like a Malcolm Gladwell or someone, his kind of accent. Yeah, what is, I mean, because he's Canadian, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's but, quite broad though. It's quite, it feels like it's a little bit strong. I, th- I feel like he's, he's a product of, yeah, just having lived, probably lived in the US for years. He's, he's a man of the world, I suppose. So he, he's got a global accent, let's say. Speaking of uh, Partridge a moment ago, did you ever get into like Monty Python or anything as well? I did as a kid. Um, I had a little moment. I never went deep into it, but as a child, I got. I was really into. I was really into Red Dwarf and Faulty. Well, I was really into Faulty Towers, which was my entry point, I think, into Monty Python because of John Cleese. But um, there was a few things. Um, like Red Dwarf and Faulty Towers were, and a little bit of Monty Python, more of the movies and stuff when I was, you know, like 10 or something, but loved that stuff. Do you see that humor shining through in Penguins at all, do you think? I do, kind of. I mean, I feel like that's all, that's all in there. It's like in the soup. Um, yeah. Do you? <laughs> yeah. That's why I was asking. <laughs> okay. Fun. Yeah. Interesting. I think. That kind of idea, you know, where the character or something awful always happens to them. That feels like very British humor. Good. Yeah. Thanks. That I like that. It is. I mean, it is something that I, I'm very tickled by just this endless um, suffering I find so funny. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's interesting as well, because with penguins, you're, you know, you're communicating, whether it be suffering or just these kind of stories and ideas without any words. Can you learn anything from that that carries back into your music, communicating without language? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think I was just at a period in my life when I decided to make that book that I wanted to I wanted to just not use words. I I was tired of songwriting. I had I didn't have much I felt like I didn't have much to say. I didn't have much else to say in that regard. And I wanted to do as 180 a turn as I could, you know, singing songs with lyrics to telling, you know, visual stories like cartoons or comic book without words. So I wanted to just do as 
go as far away from songwriting as I could, but I definitely think there's things that I can, having done that, I can now reintroduce to the music. And I always, I I think music can obviously tell a a story without words. One of my favorite groups uh, has Penguin in the title, Penguin Cafe Orchestra, a great group from the UK from the beginning in the 70s. And they were like a chamber kind of experimental um, ensemble that, um, yeah, can get very emotional just using music um, without lyrics. So I think it's possible. What was the deal with them again? Because didn't the guy die in the 90s, but then they've had more records come out since? I believe his son <clears throat> took over. But yeah, his, his Simon Jeffries was the main architect of that band. And he passed, yeah, I think in the 90s. The whole concept of the group came to him in a dream. He was playing at a cafe populated by penguins. So he was uh, trying to honor that dream or experience that dream, <laughs> which is nice. I like that image for like a short film or something. Yeah, it feels very, very dreamlike. I mean, it's interesting as well, we're kind of touching upon film and TV a little bit at the start of this, because I'm currently in the middle of watching Girls for mm. the first time. Oh, yeah. I'm on about season four, and I saw your album cover and kind of did a double take of sorts <laughs> and looked a little bit closer because it's um, Alex Karpovsky. Yeah, it is. Who's in Girls. He's one of the main cast. What's the kind of story there? How did that come about? That's a funny... I think I was watching Girls, too, and I think I stopped it around season four. We He had moved to LA. I think we had... At one point, we had dated the same girl... And there was a little bit of friction. I think he had dated her first. Um, And so there was a little bit of like, maybe there was even some overlap. I don't know. But there was a little bit of um, conflict. I think we were kind of mild enemies for a short time, but before we really knew each other. And he moved to LA from New York. This was years ago now, like seven years ago. I play basketball, uh, like a weekly basketball game. Um, we were at the time we're playing at Hollywood high, which is this like kind of institution right in the center of Hollywood. It's this high school, which has a gym, which we would rent out. And Alex started to join the games and, um, it was fun. You know, it was a fun game, but it was always when he started showing up, it was like, Oh God, this guy's here. Like I got to guard this guy. And for, for years it was quite, um, awkward. Uh, but then we just kind of, I think we were met, ran into each other at a party and we'd known each other from basketball, but we'd never really spoken and we got to talking and we just, the conversation flowed really nicely and we just kind of hit it off immediately and, um, kind of became quite, quite fast friends. And, um, <clears throat> for years just real, like had a really good, um, friendship. And then it came, you know, when I came time to make this record, I knew I wanted to do this cover that was this album cover that kind of told us a little mini story in miniature on the cover. I wanted to have it feel like, like a still from a film, you know, like the long goodbye or, or something like that, where you, where you see, you just see the, the poster and you know, Oh, this character is, is on, is on a journey here. And we've just caught him right in the middle 
and also referencing some of my, you know, some of the greatest album covers of all time, um, specifically by the the collective hypnosis that did all the, you know, the classic Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin covers. And Sparks had an album cover called Propaganda, which I really loved. I mean, all of the Sparks albums, like really with the brothers on them, really felt, you felt like you were, you were in the middle of watching like a film. So I wanted to have create this scenario where we've got this character uh, in the desert and he's lost and he's got a map and he's, he's, you know, the album is called Isla Mania. So the irony is that this is character who has a love of islands, presumably also a love of the water, which is what islands are surrounded by. Um, but here he is lost in the desert and he's on a, he's in a parachute. So he's, he's missed his landing quite um, significantly. So I knew I wanted that image, um, that story to be told. We have a before, we knew he came from the sky with the parachute and we hopefully have an after where he finds his way. Um, so then it was just, well, who do I, you know, who do I get to be that person? Putting myself there, it's a little too, it's just a little too much. I'm already, in the in the songs you know i don't need i don't think i need to put myself also on the cover so i wanted to cast it and um alex has such a great face and he's such a good actor i thought well if he can convey this just in one single frame then i think it's a success and i think he did quite nice and we drove up to death valley and um, hiked out to this insane sand dunes just kind of snapped it off in this incredible heat it was quite quite wild, but he did. I think he did such a great job and such a, you know, simple execution. But I think we did it. I'm very happy with that cover. Death Valley is the hottest place in the world, isn't it? It sure is. Yeah, we waited. Wow. We waited until I think it was early October because a month before, it was <clears throat> the hottest it had ever been on planet Earth ever <laughs> recorded. <laughs> So we were like, are we really going to go out there? You know, and he's in a full suit and he's dragging this parachute. Um, so it wasn't like, it, it was, there was some danger, you know, it wasn't without its risks, but. Well, I think I saw a few other shots from that shoot where you're shooting in front of like a burning bush or something. The stuff just catch fire because it's so hot. No, we were on our drive up there. So it was the photographer, Jason Tippett, and myself and Alex. It was a, you know, it was a small crew. The budget was small. So we, we did it quite lean. But we were driving up to Death Valley from Los Angeles and we passed a giant fire on the side of the highway. And so we said, hey, maybe, you know, that maybe that's the cover. Like maybe that's the airplane that crashed. We, we find this like plume of smoke and we situate you in front of it and it looks like your plane has crashed and you're walking through. Cause there was still up near there was still desert. It wasn't the same kind of desert. It was more the brambly, you know, tumbleweed and like flat dry earth, you know, um, sort of desert. But, uh, so we did that and it was like a controlled burn. It was something that these, you know, these forest sort of, well, it was not really a forest, but these fire places like do these controlled burns to keep, keep things safe in, in really dry conditions. So we got really close to this, um, smoke, this like fire and the, uh, one of the, um, you know, rangers or whatever came up on us and was like yelling at us like, this is private property. You're going to get, we're going to arrest you if you don't leave right away. And so we, we did manage to get a shot. Um, but we couldn't get 
quite as we would have gotten even closer if we could have but we had to get out of there and it was a it was a fine shot but really the the money shot was the was in the dunes so we were just experimenting it's interesting what you were saying as well about how you kind of know the story that's happened before this shot and you imagine there would be an after two would you ever look to create some continuity because i know you've spoken that this album is kind of part of a trilogy in your mind would you ever look to maybe continue it in future the cover idea yeah i mean there is a sequel in mind um i i do think the third in the series because i i'm now writing for the i've been writing for the third album i have some demos and stuff i feel like it's going to constantly change over because it's going to be a while before that third record comes out so songs will come and go but for the second album it's all pretty much allocated all the songs are allocated and um i do kind of i do i didn't quite I, i've never i didn't think that specifically but it's a good it's a good idea to bring he is kind of now alex inadvertently if we choose if he would do the second cover in some way um it would create like a really nice narrative and it would um it would it would be nice i don't know if he's gonna want to do it i you know i think he was it was a novelty for him to be on and he'd never been on an album cover. So I was like, that sounds fun. I don't know if he's going to want to do it again. The second album is, is called, and that's why dolphins lost their legs. So it's, it has an oceanic sort of theme, but it's, it's much bleaker. It's like a very dark, sour record. So, you know, the idea that dolphins used to walk around on earth and then, realized how much it sucked so they they uh evolutioned out their their legs and went back in the water it's like that episode of the simpsons when the dolphins take over the town <laughs> right <laughs> forgot about that yeah <laughs> you can always pull it back to the simpsons yeah it's true i i think this was in the podcast because you did that kind of double uh two-part podcast was it, it was the same name as the album right yes yes kind of looking at the discography of the group so far before kind of pushing on with this one and you spoke a little bit in that about how you felt like arm's way was a direct reaction to return to the sea because that kind of boxed you in a little bit what was your headspace going into this new album was it a similar thing were you framing it in the context of what had come before or where were you at well i think because i'd had i had this five-year um space i think i i didn't really need to have any counter feeling it was just it felt fresh it felt like i i was starting fresh so it wasn't a you know this record wasn't in reaction to any that came before it i think it was really just in reaction to my attitude over the past few years when i wasn't writing music when i you know i'd spent probably two or three years without writing a single song which is on you know i'm in normal times, I'm always, you know, it's a it's a constant flow where I'm always writing um, whether those songs evolve enough to the point where they're considered for the record. But there's always like a steady stream of ideas. So there was a few years when I wasn't writing. So I think it was really just the idea for this record was just to embrace the, uh, the just the craft of it, of it you know. When you say you weren't writing at all for two years or so, were you drawing every day or writing other things every day in place of that? For that year that I was making the book, I was drawing every day. 
or most days. That was kind of the main project. Um, and I was trying other things. I was writing script stuff. You know, I live in LA, so eventually you do catch the bug, the Hollywood bug. So, and I'd gone to film school years before, so I was like, oh, I kind of want to re re-engage with this because um, I've always had that desire to um, make a movie. Um, and so I'd been writing a little bit and, and was working on a, I had a film in Canada that was being set up and I'd, I'd had some money and, and was casting it and had all of this, these things. And then, if, you know, it's a very tricky thing making a film. So I was, I was a, a bit short on money and couldn't, couldn't get over the finish line with it. And then COVID hit and it was kind of killed it. But, uh, Maybe it's not dead. I don't know. But that's still something I'm interested in doing at some point. But yeah, music came a calling and I just came, you know, this, the, the ideas started to seep back in and I, I started up again with it. You used to want to be an editor, right? That was kind of your way into filmmaking. Yeah. Where did I, did I say that somewhere? <laughs> did I say that, <laughs> that in the a, podcast? That was where you went to film school, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to ask, it's interesting because when you look at, this album you've just put out in context of the other ones and it's kind of been a progression to all of them but it feels like you've learned to say both musically and lyrically it's still achieving the same emotional impact but in less time or less words and it's kind of just condensing it a little bit how has your editing process changed musically over the course of the records and into this one i think i was re- revising a lot you know i was i'm i was sort of employing the the skills through writing, you know, when I was writing, I'd sold a pilot uh, script to this uh, production company uh, for like a half hour comedy kind of thing. And I, you know, I sent them the draft and I would get notes and I'd have to edit and, and do another pass and, and figure out like the arc of this character and the arc of the show. And I had to think about all of these things and constantly refine and, just improve on this, uh, on this, every aspect of it. And songwriting is this very like mysterious, you know, ephemeral kind of process where for me, at least where it's, I'm not using technique. I'm just sort of using intuition as a way to, uh, to guide me through it. And I think with this record, it was, it was fun because I was a little more, judicious about what I would do, what words I would use, how I would um, create the song structure. I was a little more intentional. You know, I, I think it's, I was trying to make, you know, not trying, I was, I set out to sort of make a, I don't want to say a pop record, but as much of a, um, Look, it's hard. To, it's hard for me to talk about my own work, especially when it's so, <laughs> so new. But I was trying to. I was trying something, and you know, trying is usually the first uh, step to failure. I think as soon as you try, try too hard, you fail. But yes, I was. I was more conscious of the editing process with this record. I was like fine tuning things. I wanted to make. Look, I wanted to make a perfect record. I. I'd been gone for five years and I knew that I could do this a little slower and a little more deliberately than I'd ever done before because I had no timeline. No one was expecting a record. Um, there wasn't a deadline. There wasn't a label when I was making this record, you know, it was before 
Royal Mountain had stepped in to um, to do it. So I was doing this kind of piecemeal. I was doing a song here at the studio, a song there at that studio, and just kind of slowly whittling away. So it was a new it was a new process, and it was it was enjoyable. I think it was a little. I think I like I, I'd like to be able to go back to the the process I usually do, which is you know go into a studio for three weeks and you you kind of bang out a record. But I didn't want those constrictions. I wanted to try something new. I liken it to uh, George Costanza and Seinfeld, who who decides to do the opposite of every instinct that he's ever had. To, f- to finally succeed for once in his life. And it works. He, he does every instinct. Um, he just goes in the opposite direction. And uh, so I decided to do that with this record. It's like, I want to make something <clears throat> and I'm going to do the opposite of what I've done before and just see how it goes. So that was the goal. I like that analogy. The summer of George. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you get it. <laughs> How, how when you're talking about kind of nipping in and out of various studios there when you're constructing it how much of this was done in the city of quartz and how much of it was done what were the other studios you were kind of using it was almost exclusively here in the city of quartz los angeles um lipstick city the first song i went in before I was even sure if it was going to be an Islands record or if it was going to be a solo thing or or what, um, I brought in closed captioning, a demo of it to Chris Cody, this producer uh, who, who produces two songs on the record. I'd worked with him a decade before, so I was like, well, maybe if maybe I'll, you know, ten years later, maybe I'll um, bring him this song. So I went and he had a room at Sunset Sound, which is like a you know very. Um, venerated a legendary venue in or a studio in <clears throat> Los Angeles where many Tom Pay did stuff there didn't Tom, he? yeah I, I mean I sang into the microphone um that he sang I, th- I guess I think it was Full Moon Fever he he uh sang uh on into this you know Neumann microphone that I sang into as well and you so you're kind of paying for that history I think when you go in in there and, you know, we used Prince's reverb um, that he used for Purple Rain. It was like a very, you know, you feel like you're in the halls of greatness. So it kind of pumps you up. My two Islands members were in Canada, Jordy and Evan, the brothers. They were up in Canada. Jordy was on tour with another band that he plays in U.S. Girls. And so he came in and played bass on closed captioning. Mike from Ratatat was in town. And so he, with his he's got a new band called Kunzite and they were doing some recording. So he came in and played guitar on that song and, um, and Adam lives in town, the drummer. So he was drumming. And so when Mike came in, I was kind of telling him like, he was asking like, what is this? I was like, well, it's this, I don't know. I think it's a new Islands record. I'm not quite sure. Maybe a solo record, but it's quite, you know, it's expensive being at Sunset Sound. I don't know how much longer I can do this for. I'm just doing one song and it's already like the budget that I, you know, spent on the last record, basically. So he was like, well, why don't you come up to the Catskills in um, upstate New York to my place? I have a studio. So I did. I, I went, flew to New York and uh, took the bus up to um, the Catskills and made... Um, the uh, passionate age we we i brought that demo to him and he just did his wizardry on that and um and so that was kind of, that was the only out of state song 
um, that we recorded, but it got the got the blood flowing a little bit, you know, then now I had two songs together for this record and it was kind of starting to put the pieces together. And I went back to LA, made a plan, got together with this producer, Patrick Ford, this friend of mine in LA and started to piece all of the, the rest of the album together. Said, okay, I'm making an album. Like I have these two songs and now we're going to do a session. And then I kept writing and doing more um, cut two more sessions after that. So I wanted to have it be this drawn out process where I had a time to say, okay, this song, you know, there were a couple songs we recorded. It's like, okay, these songs are not appropriate for this record. So they're not going to, you know, they're not going to go. There's probably four or five other songs that um, have more of a, <clears throat> had a different feel once I started to piece together the concept of the record. So how do you decide that those first two are going to be the ones that you pin down first and use to kind of be the signpost for where the record's going to go? Well, they sort of dictated, you know, when, when I made A Passionate Age, I went home and I was like, that was so good and fun. I want to, I want to write another song in that. I want to keep that party going. I want to keep whatever that feeling is. I want to, I want to keep that alive. So I wrote um, Isla Mania, the title song. And that was, you know, I wanted to, I wanted that kind of slightly French um, sound, uh, like the French touch kind of sound, which Passionate Age kind of references. Um, I wanted to kind of explore that a little further in my own, filtered through my own um, style or whatever. So then Isla Mania came out of that. And then, you know, once, once that was, you know, we're laying the cards on the table, it start, you start to see the patterns emerge. So I just sort of followed that um, path, I guess. You know, once you start to see those patterns emerge, how long does it take for you to kind of get a full grip on what this record is and what it's going to be? Um, then, then we're off to the races. You know, I think once, <clears throat> once I started to have that idea, you, you start to just follow. I, I would just go towards it. And that doesn't mean I didn't still record, you know, go into the studio and record these other songs with the idea that, okay, maybe these aren't for this record, but I'm still going to follow. I'm going to do my due diligence and record them and see how they look. You know, you kind of have to go the distance and have the songs recorded and, and open up the the folder and look at them and listen to them and say, okay, do these, do these flow? And, you know, maybe you don't need to do that either. I think one thing that people liked so much about the first islands record is that I didn't care about any of that. You know, the, the chaos of that first album is what people I think were drawn to is that every song kind of went in a different genre direction you know there was the more of a country sound and then there was a kind of sort of our version of like a rap <laughs> a rap song like a rap beat yeah so there was all these different styles we were trying to like explore and not concerned about any kind of consistency which i don't think you should be too concerned i think you need to just i don't know i think one you just need to it just needs to feel good i think that's the only that should be your main guiding light, I think, in anything is, does this feel good? And if it does, then who cares what, if it makes sense, you know? Yeah, it's just about trusting in the process and mm. you'll find your way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's interesting as well, I think, was it set the fair, like that was the last one you completed for the record, right? Yeah, that's right. When 
you say it's the last one that you finish. How clear an idea do you have? Is everything else fully in place or is it just kind of a sketch of how it's going to finish up? There might have been, you know, I yeah, everything was pretty much in place. I think I'd, I knew there was the nine songs were allocated, if not mixed fully. No, they hadn't been mixed yet, but they'd been fully organized and, and set. So they hadn't been mixed, but they were they were the songs that they were going to be and the sequence maybe not the sequence but the the definitely the the final songs and it was one of those things where it was and i feel like this happens a lot with people I'm, i don't think i'm alone but you you know usually the last song can kind of ha- be like the one last like burst of of energy that gets you over the finish line and the song just kind of came out of nowhere um and you know i I wrote it really fast i think i wrote it just in one sitting and knew immediately that it needed to be on this record um and so it was kind of the like 11th hour edition and i wrote it and then i took it to chris and it was kind of full circle i went back to chris cody's um he was now he'd moved studios uh, at this point it was a year it was a year and a half. It was just over a year after we'd started uh, the record. So a year had gone by and, um, <clears throat> and we moved to his, his new studio, which was um, in Glendale, California, just, uh, just the two of us and then brought in Adam, the drummer. And that was kind of that, that I knew then the bow was, was on the record. I knew that was the the kind of final piece that was missing, you know, I didn't know it until I'd written the song, but Oh yeah, this song, this is what completes the thing. So then I knew we'd, we'd had it. We had the 10 songs and we had a complete record. Does it change the way you think about the other nine in any way? No, I think they're all, they all have their own different little journeys to getting completed. They, they really have their own life to them, I think. And this one, I think this one fits in. You know, and it's hard, I think, to, to go with different producers. Um, there's different mixers on, you know, Chris mixed that one, Chris Cody, and then John Congleton mixed most of the others. Um, Mike Stroud mixed his own uh, production, A Passionate Age. So there's a lot of competing voices and flavors and personalities. So it was a bit of a, a juggle, juggling act to um, to sort of wrangle all of these <clears throat> voices, these creative voices into one cohesive record. So it was, it, it was a bit of a, uh, it was a bit tricky, but I think, I think we got there. But then I guess if it's your one, you know, singular creative voice at the heart of it, and that's where they're all originating from. I imagine that gives you a through line to kind of grab a hold of. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, the, the, it's always going to be, I'm always going to be there. So th- I think that's what ties all of the records together. I try every record I try to, you know, I'd heard an interview recently that I love uh, with this guy. This guy, maybe you've heard of him, uh, Brian Eno. <laughs> um, he he was being interviewed by Rick Rubin. Oh, is this some broken record? Yeah, yeah. And he talks about it's fuck. It's one, a wonderful interview. Brian Eno is one of my absolute heroes, um, and so I just I love I love him so much. But one of the things he talks about is. Um, there are two, kind of two kinds of artists. There are the the pioneers, the the frontiersmen, and then the farmers. And so, it, you know, I, I, I you know the idea that basically, 
if you're, if, if you're out on the land, um, tilling the soil, you know, perfecting your, your song, uh, or your style or your sound revising and kind of creating the same thing again and again until you find, until you reach perfection or you're the kind of, um, artist that's going out and trying to discover new things and explore new, new ways of, of learning and seeing the world. And so I, I kind of feel like I straddle that a little bit, but I do feel like I like to go out into the world and, and find a new, um, approach and discover new things and find new ways to make records or, or, or find new sounds to employ, I guess. So that's, that's kind of what these, uh, these records have been for me, um, over the past 15 years. But yeah, like you said, the through line is, is me, I guess. It feels like you've always been a little bit like that too, though. Cause I mean, was it not, was it like the second Unicorns album or something you wanted to make it a board game yes. or something like that when you had that yeah. idea kind of floating around, there was still going to be another <laughs> one of those records. Yeah. You've done your research, my friend. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we were pranksters then too. Like that, that was definitely subverting expectations was the main objective with that band. And <clears throat> I think also because we were, really not getting along and i wonder if maybe i knew that getting back in the studio and making a record might have been too impossible a task so it would have been funnier just to prank the our fan base which now i wouldn't do that i think when you're 22 you you can you can kind of have that sort of attitude but it's more combative i like to be now i just like to be grateful and humbled <laughs> Do you still see that combative attitude in yourself in any way? In little moments, it shines. I've I've got a glimmer of it left, but um, I've just been beaten down too much over the past fifteen years. I've been humbled, so now I just I just uh, mostly just happy to be where I am. I don't want to rock the boat too much. That's what the music industry does to you. It fucks you up, but you know I I do need a little bit of that mischief to come back because. It give, it's that's what life is, you know. I think that's a big, important part of of living is uh, fucking shit up. If you don't mind me, my cursing. Um, Go for it. <laughs> I do think that's. I do think that's a big part of. I think people want it. They want to be. They want their boat to be rocked. I think you know they need it and they respond to it. It's exciting. It's exhilarating. So I, I think um, you know I think that the record after this follow-up record my third the third record is somewhat of a trilogy but it's kind of on its own it's it's going to be more of the the boat rocking record it's going to be more of the mischief record you'll see i mean i feel like calling a, a record and that's why the dolphins lost their legs feels a little bit mischievous there's a little yeah i'm i'm easing back into the ocean of uh troublemaking so there is a little bit of that on the next record there's definitely it's definitely more playful it's dark but it's a little more um it's still it's more humorous i would say yeah dark in what way dark in the way that uh you know in the depressed way <laughs> in the in the uh all is lost kind of way i guess feeling like i've grappled with depression i suppose so it's just kind of going towards that the darkness yeah the sadness how when you're looking at that and your music are you trying to find the light in it in some way or are you just presenting it as it is it depends on the mood when i'm writing sometimes it's just a full embrace of the the darkness and sometimes it's 
you know, there's a joke in there just to soften it, you know, a little gallows humor or whatever. But uh, sometimes it's, sometimes I'm trying to push against it. I think that's what Isla Mania is. It's, as the record, I think it's, uh, it's trying to push against the, the darkness and really find the, find the light and the joy in, <clears throat> in all of this and the, the gratitude in all of it, you know. I can only occupy that space for so long before I go back to my little hole, my little cave, which is where, <laughs> which where I'm headed. It can be empowering too, though. Like when you listen to Isla Mania, the fact that, you know, there's some darker songs on there lyrically and yet you turn them into these dancey, kind of punching the air bangers. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that's that's always been something I've l- l- tried to do is is take these dark you know even since obviously the unicorns the first first record was to do was to have these like silly sounding buoyant kind of little songs that were sounded on their surface uplifting but then when you listen you you hear how grim they were is that ever reflected for you too in the writing process do you know how dark something is when you first write it or is it only upon reflection that you notice I think so. I think I'm aware. I, you know, I try to like just receive it and not be too, too conscious during the, the writing process. I, 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 let, I wait for the critical part to come in, but I think I have some awareness of where, where it's headed tonally, you know, as it's happening. I wanted to ask a wee bit about Carpenter mm. as well. Yes. Because <laughs> I'm intrigued by when you came back to that song. Yeah. Where was your headspace at? Do you remember how you, were you relating to it? What was your feelings on it when you first rediscovered that demo? I don't fucking remember. I don't remember. And it's, <clears throat> I don't know if you're going to do an intro off the top that explains all this or if we need to talk. We probably need to explain a little bit, yeah. <sighs> well... I apologize for no. It's got it no. You have to. You're doing your work. You're uh, you're well researched. So I expect nothing less from you, Alex. Um, <laughs> I okay. So like I said, I took five years off from doing the music stuff. I was doing other things. At some point in those years, I discovered a song by Julie Byrne called "Prism Song." And though I don't remember this, clearly I was moved by the song. I sat down at my studio where I'm sitting right now, picked up a guitar, plugged it in, and just very quickly ripped off, no pun intended, I was going to say ripped off like in the sense of like played, uh, a quick cover version of it. Um, just, Just sang the verse, played the chords, maybe added a chord or two as well. Very, very like, I didn't know what the chords were necessarily, but I was like, oh, this minor sounds good. I don't know if she went to the minor. I'd only listened to the song once, but I was like, oh, there's something that, that uh, I'm responding to. And it's, it's kind of, I, I just want to feel that. I, I just want to feel what that, that feels like. Cause I hadn't written a song in a while and we had no intention of it. So I recorded a little demo of it, closed the file on my computer, forgot about it, for I don't know how long I don't recall any of this, but um, years went by, and when I was starting to make Isla Mania, I was going through my folders on my computer, 
of all the sketches and little things that I'd recorded. And, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of stuff, you know, like folders and folders of just little nuggets and ideas. And I see this one folder and, oh, it's got a lot of megabytes. Like, it looks like I went kind of big on this uh this session so let me open it up and it was and i think it said prism song on it i opened it up i listened to it i was like whoa this is so good like what is this i had no memory that it was a cover no memory whatsoever and i liked it i liked and i even said in the initial press release for the song i discovered it in this way and it felt like i was singing someone else's song it felt exciting i was exhilarated by that turns out i was singing someone else's song but i didn't know it at the time so i finished you know i wrote a second verse um i finished the song i added an outro i added a couple like instrumental bridges and i brought it into the studio when it came time to record it and we recorded it and mixed it and mastered it and you know pressed it onto vinyl, released it into the world. And three days after the record came out, um, someone on Twitter was like, that's a cover. That's not a, like, there's a reason why you said in the press release that it feels like you're singing someone else's song. And I was, I, it was, it was, uh, it was like being in a bad dream. I mean, I still feel like I'm in a, a bad dream. It doesn't feel real to me. It doesn't make sense to me that this could have happened. I was completely mortified. And I have no I have no answer for how that could have happened, how that could have slipped me by, other than that, you know, I have a terrible memory. But also that when songwriting takes place, I don't remember anything when I'm writing a song. Anytime someone's like, Well, what is this song about? I honestly have to re excavate listen to the song again and say, oh, what was I, what was I going for here? So much of the writing process for me is, you know, it sounds, it sounds a little precious to say, but there is a kind of trance that I go into when I'm writing. I'm not consciously working through stuff. I'm not a technical writer. I, I taught myself how to play music, so I don't have sheets in front of me. It's not schematics. It's not structured that way. It's all feeling. So, I just assumed that it was one of many in the pile and I didn't recall, but I was like, well, my dad was a carpenter. Um, so I must've been, I must've been writing about my dad, you know, I, it's mortifying that I got, that it got that far, you know, second I discovered it, I reached out to my publishing person, contacted Julie Burns people, um, Get, you know, made it clear that 100% of the publishing on the song was was being, you know, was hers, and uh, it's a it's now just a cover song. But it was a very, very awkward way to get there. Um, and as a cover song, I think it's quite good. I really do. I'm I'm proud of it as a cover song. As a Nick Thorburn original, I think it's absolute dog shit. But <laughs> it's just how it goes. I mean, it it's fascinating to think about. Yeah, it. I've never. I can't think of any other situation where this happened. Although I heard, I heard a story about Lolita once that Nabokov. I think he had a professor uh, as a child, as, as a young man, um, and wrote uh, who'd written this exact story, and then years later, 
sub, uh, subconsciously he'd um, stolen it very specifically. So there is a thing about, you know, George Harrison and my sweet Lord with the chiffons. Um, he's so fine. You know, there are these things where it creeps into your subconscious. This was one more level up. This was, you know, I documented this someone else's idea and then forgot that it was someone else's idea. So it's a very embarrassing situation, but it is historic. I mean, I don't think this is, I've never seen another example of this happening. Um, I hate to be a pioneer in that way, but. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's funny because I was reading an interview with you where you spoke about sometimes when you look back on old records, it feels as if like you were examining another person's work. It almost ties into that a little bit. And it's this idea that we very quickly become separating a different person from who created music that I mean you maybe only made a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I was in a I was in a bit of a dark place too um during that period, you know. I was I was going through things where I was not wanting to be too checked into reality. So I think I was I was already kind of checked out. Um but writing is this it is this sort of checked out process. I think it's the way you can let ideas in is to put your guard down. And I think creative people do understand that. And I, I've, I've received sympathy for what happened. I think it's not that I'm deserving of sympathy. I, I made a mistake. Um, it was an honest mistake. It, it truly was. I, I swear on my life. It was a, it was an honest, it was an honest mistake. It was just so public, you know, it was just such a public and I, you know, I, now I have this I feel like I have this thing that's stuck with me and I hope it becomes just more of a funny footnote and people can see that there are albums and albums of songs that are mine, uh, songs that are mine. And, and, um, you know, and I, I love the idea of, I've talked about it before too, of quoting other music. I think songs, especially pop songs there, there's, there are references all throughout history. You can hear, you know, every day you can hear. I weirdly just heard the weirdest thing I heard yesterday. I was listening to this psychic TV song, um, White Nights, and, um, you know, Genesis Peorge's early band, um, or not early band, but post-Throbbing Gristle. And I was listening along to it. I was like, that's a good melody. Uh, wait, that's Kokomo by the Beach Boys. But, you know, psychic TV came first. So did did Mike Love, I think Mike Love wrote Kokomo, did Mike Love rip off Genesis Peorge? Um, it sounds like the same song, but I think the answer is no. I think there's, there's a swirl of combinations of melodies and progressions and stuff, but it's just, you know, you can see these examples all over the place where writers after the fact have to give, uh, have to give their publishing to someone that came before them, you know, Sam Smith and Tom Petty and the Strokes and Billy Idol or whatever. So this happens all the time, but not quite as extreme as mine. I've never seen this happen so much. So, yeah. It almost feels evocative of something that you might see happening in Penguins. <laughs> it's a similar kind of a funniness to it except in penguin you would get eaten by a shark or something i feel like i did get eaten by a shark in a way yeah but he spit me out because i tasted like shit <laughs> <laughs> speaking of getting 
eaten by sharks. I wanted to ask about gore because it's this kind of it's the final song on the album, and it almost feels like something that would play as the credits roll. It's got that sense of cinematic finality to it. What did that start with, and how did it kind of form and become what it is now? I don't know. I mean, the honest answer is like most of these songs. I'll be in a flurry of writing and I'll be feeling something and and I I let it go, you know. So I don't I don't know where where what I was at, you know, what place I was at when I was writing it, but um I I very quickly knew it was going to be the 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 album closer. Um it sort of hints towards something a little darker, I think, obviously. What's to come? What's to come? Yeah, I do like when the last album on uh, the last song on an album sort of gestures towards um, sort of an ellipsis towards what's coming after it. <clears throat> and Gore is, is definitely in that world. Um, it's definitely the darkest song on the record. It's um, very cynical and angry and, and vaguely political too, I guess <clears throat> just to, you know, I mean, I don't want to explain it's, meaning too much lyrically but i think it's all kind of you can it's not that obtuse i think you can interpret it pretty pretty easily but uh i don't know i think that's i think i just wanted there to be this wall just this like kind of wall of sound that just sort of hit you at the end after you had this this nice um sunny beach time um there is a there is a consequence to all that Maybe that mischievous side coming through again, just to kind of trip us up because we did just to add something into the mix that you wouldn't expect. Yeah, yeah, and especially at the end, you know, lull you into this place of contentment and then pull the rug out from under you. It's interesting what you were saying at the start of that too about how you can't, you're not quite sure how it developed, and it's interesting to think about this too. And what we were just saying about Carpenter, does it ever feel like the songs already exist and you're kind of just catching them? And kind of just pulling them from the air as opposed to writing them and they're coming out of you. Totally. Totally. I mean, that's a big part of writing is feeling like, especially when the songs are good and when they come fast. Um, Set the Fairlight was an example too, where the chords just started to come and the melody was there. And it was like, does this, is this even, is this mine? And now, of course, I I have to be careful when I say that because I, I had that exact thing happen. As, as far as I know, these songs are all mine, minus Carpenter. But it is, that's why it's so confusing because it is that same feeling that you get when you're hitting, when you're in the moment, when you're in it, when you're, you're striking iron, you know, it really feels like you're receiving it more than you're creating it. And, you know, Paul McCartney had that famous example with Yesterday where he, I think he had the song, it came to him in a dream, very completed. And I've had songs come to me in dreams too, um, not to compare myself to Sir McCartney. Um, but he woke up with yesterday in his head, fully realized, and he went around to everybody. I mean, maybe everybody knows this story and it's boring to repeat it, but he went around to every friend he had and sang it to them and said, what is this song? Like, it's a, I think it's a song from my childhood. He was convinced that it was an old song from his youth. And no one had heard it. He went around to everybody and no one could identify it. So he said, okay, I guess it's my song. I think even to this day is not entirely sure that it is. That's what I'm just thinking. I wonder if it'd be fascinating, you know, say 
in 50 years once everything's been completely digitized we uncovered a song from like the 1930s or 40s that had the same melody yeah yeah and i mean the melodies get copied and borrowed and quoted all the time i mean you could turn on the radio and isolate a melody and see where it where its origins lie and sometimes that's completely subconscious we we're all music is always playing throughout the throughout the day we're always hearing it everywhere we go you know every you know there was a thing with steve vai and coldplay there was a coldplay song that steve vai i think it was steve vai or steve satriani i always forget i always get those two guys mixed up but there's something vai, i think yeah do you know this story he was convinced that they'd ripped off this melody and it is very similar um, and they def- denied it. They're like, we've never heard this song before. But you can't really say that you've never heard a song before. You could easily be walking into a grocery store or pharmacy and having this melody just sort of wor- bur- wor- uh, worm its way, burrow its way into your subconscious and then come out. So it's a scary thing to be... It's a scary place to be, and it's the 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 world of songwriting got a whole lot scarier for me in the past couple of weeks. That idea we were talking about there too, where you know, almost feels like you're grabbing them out of the air. Is that a similar thing creatively when you're drawing or when you're writing scripts, or is that exclusive to music? It feels more exclusive to music, but actually, when I sit down to draw, it's almost like you see the shapes sometimes when I'm drawing. It's almost like I see the shapes before me when I'm, and I'm almost following the line, this invisible line on the page. And that's really weird too. Um, There's something really almost spooky about that. So I think with drawing, it can definitely be the case where it's almost like, you know, the idea of automatic writing or something where you're you're channeling some spirit realm, but with drawing cartoons, I mean, there is something, something vaguely similar. I don't actually think I'm receiving cartoons from the other side, but, um, the DMT elves, the DMT elves who are (laughs) graciously and yeah, they, I'm sort of, and I'm grateful to those little guys, but, uh, but with writing, I feel like it's more concrete and that's why that's why it's a writing for me it definitely has more of like a i don't know is it the left side of the brain where it feels more everything's more logical like i have an idea i make maybe write a note in my notes app oh this would be a funny um situation this would be a nice um di- piece of dialogue or a line that a character might say and so it feels more more grounded whereas drawing and um, songwriting definitely feels like I give myself up a little bit to the unknown. When was the last day you didn't create something? <sighs> I've been in a lull. I'll be honest. It's been a. I wrote it. I wrote two songs a couple months ago. I started sort of writing a song yesterday, but I've been in this weird sort of depressed lull i think every time an album comes out it's like i get a little depressed um because it's out release depression yeah truly um so i feel i've not been very productive which is it's i need to get back to it but i also needed a, a little sabbatical i guess but i've been writing i was writing some like short stories and stuff i was doing a lot of that and i was just been sketching you know i'm always i'm always just drawing idly sort of waiting to find the inspiration for the next um, 
book that I do, but uh, I have not been as creative as I'd like to be. So I need to be, I need to not be too hard on myself about that, but I am feeling a little bit um, like I'm just drawing air without kind of contributing to the greater good. Can you feel fulfilled without creating in your life? No. Deeply no. Deep no. Is that something you saw in your life before you started creating? I don't want to, you know, self-mythologize here, but I, you know, drawing was my first love and it was something I was always doing since I, as long as I could remember um, as a kid, you know. Um, so I do feel like that's a big part of my identity is, is that side of expression, creative expression. And so I feel as though it's pretty intrinsically linked to who I am as a person now. So I think if there was a time when I wasn't drawing or writing or making songs, um, I would feel like something really bad had happened. Something really wrong had, had happened. It's terrifying to think about. <laughs> I think that's an insightful note to wrap us up on, man. Ev slightly in the same way we were talking about how gore is kind of like the ellipsis leading <laughs> on to the next record. There's a darkness to that end note too that I think carries on in a similar way. Yeah, always end dark. That's, that's sort of <laughs> that's what my mom taught me. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.